Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Mariana Ganapini. She is an assistant professor in the philosophy department at Union College in New York. She works primarily in contemporary philosophy of mind and epistemology. She also has related interests in the ethics and epistemology of AI. And today we're going to talk about things like belief, confabulation, and a little bit of AI toward the end. So Dr. Ganapini, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, let me ask you first about belief. So from a philosophy of mind perspective, and perhaps, I don't know, also an epistemology perspective, what is belief? So beliefs are um, defined as sort of mental attitudes. So there are things that go on in the mind and they have, they are described or defined as, ever, as having a particular role or function in the mind. So beliefs are things like, I believe today is Tuesday, I believe it's sunny outside. So these are the kind of things that we think about when we talk about belief in this, in this context. And they have a very important role in the mind because they are what really guides your action. They are sort of the maps that you use to um, go around the world. And in particular, they are the kind of things that, if true, they can satisfy your goals or desires. And so when in philosophy of mind, we talk about beliefs, we identify, usually identify them with a particular role function. And, and the functions that they, that they have are sort of usually divided in a sort of upstream, what it's called upstream functions and downstream functions. So let me start with the second. So what, what we mean by downstream? Well, really what I just said. So the idea that belief is what guides your actions and if true they can really satisfy your goals so they have the the function of belief is to kind of get together with the other attitudes and uh, in particular desires to um motivate you to do something so if i am uh, if it's raining out if i believe it's raining outside that's a typical example and i don't want to get wet what's going on with this was these two attitudes are going to motivate me to, uh, for, for instance, um, make sure that I have an umbrella with me. So, uh, so these are the sort of up, downstream, downstream role of belief. But belief also has an sort of upstream function. And that means that usually, typically, paradigmatically, Beliefs are the sort of attitudes that are sensitive to evidence. They are usually caused by perception. They might be caused by other beliefs that you have. But the idea is that typically, pragmatically, belief is the kind of thing that should be sensitive to the evidence that you have. And so this is how in philosophy, philosophy of mind in particular, we see, we see belief. Right. But in this case, and when you were talking about downstream effects, so you're saying there that beliefs have a causal relationship with behavior. I mean, they are not simply epiphenomenal, right? So they have, um, they have a specific sort of um, causal effect. They don't have an, usually a causal effect by themselves when it respect to action, but as I said, they need to be sort of... Um, 
tangled up with other attitudes such as desires. So if you desire something and you believe something else, that usually brings you to do something. And so that's sort of their sort of their paradigmatic uh, function or or causal role. Yes. Right. But uh, I mean, you would consider beliefs to be part of uh, the uh, of, to be part of knowledge, right? It would be considered a form of knowledge, or not? So okay, when in philosophy we usually tend to distinguish belief from knowledge. So. Yeah. Beliefs could, could be things that um, are false, whereas in philosophy, we want to say that knowledge is factive. It means that it can't be false. If I know that it's raining outside, it is raining outside. If I believe that it's raining outside, it might not be raining outside. So there is this element of factivity. There is another element that distinguish, usually distinguishes uh, belief and knowledge. Um, knowledge usually requires to, you to believe something and also to have a justification for it, okay? So if I believe that it's sunny outside and I, I have a justification for it, for it, for instance, that I looked um, recently, then that the sum of my belief being true and the justification for it, that amounts to knowledge. But in philosophy, we want to distinguish belief from knowledge. And, it's, um, and when we talk about belief, we're really interested in, usually at least, we're really interested in what does belief do? How does belief form? How does it come about? Why do I believe this and not that? And uh, how is the belief going to impact the things that I'm going to do next? So in philosophy of mind, these are the questions that we're interested in. Um, when you do epistemology, then you tend to be more interested in what constitutes knowledge, which might be different than belief, as I said. And then you, of course, have different views on what, what really constitutes knowledge. But um, the, the two questions are slightly like different, separate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm not sure if this question will make sense then, but is belief epistemologically peculiar in any way? Well, yes, in a sense that um, because of what it does, because of the role that it has, Belief uh, succeeds uh, or is correct when it's true, because if I um, if I believe something that is false, that's probably gonna bring me to do things that are not gonna satisfy my desires. So if I um, if I have a false belief, that might lead me to to the wrong kind of action or to the wrong kind of plan. So the idea is that you want your beliefs to be true. So there is a lot of emphasis on this in philosophy. And this is where philosophy of mind touches with epistemology as well, uh, in thinking that beliefs are um, really correct only when they are true. That links, Tano, is associated to, to a slightly different point which is also however has to do also has to do with um with epistemology and the sort of epistemological nature if you will of belief and namely that belief is rational uh, when it is sensitive to the evidence you have so if you saw something if you saw that it's raining so your evidence that, that it's raining but you form the belief that it's sunny outside your belief is said to be irrational so why is the, what's the link there? So the idea is you want, as I said, your beliefs to be true, right? 
but we don't have access to truth directly. We have access to truth through evidence. This evidence can be perceptual, can be the result of reasoning, but evidence is what gets you to the truth. And so it's really important uh, that your beliefs are um, epistemically rational or justified because that increases the likelihood that the belief is going to be also true. So there is, just to summarize, there is this element of sort of uh, the, the, the correctness of belief being true, but also the element of rationality, which is whether or not your beliefs are sensitive to the evidence you have. Mm -hmm. Since you touched on rationality, could you tell us about this concept of beliefs, minimal rationality? Sure. So this is a um it's gonna take me a little bit to to unpack the whole the whole story so i apologize in advance for no problem <laughs> talking so much but um so the the work and i've been doing on this issue uh, touches upon really the question of what makes belief belief what is special about belief which is sort of the question you, we started with um how is belief different from other things, other attitudes that we have, such as imagination. So if I imagine something, um, for instance, if I imagine to be uh, um, on a beach right now, that imagination is really something very different from actually believing that I'm on a beach right now. So what is the difference then? How can we sort of set these two things apart? So my work has been looking at, at that in particular. And so, as I, as I mentioned, uh, paradigmatically in philosophy of mind, we want to see beliefs as caused by, by perception, perception or by evidence, and also as things that cause action. So this is sort of the paradigmatic um, function or description of belief. However, we noticed recently that some of our beliefs do not actually work like that. So what we notice is that our beliefs are in fact at times epistemically irrational. So what do I mean by that? Um, we notice that some of our beliefs are not attuned with the evidence we have. We notice that our, some of our beliefs do not really uh, disappear if, the, if we have counter evidence for, for them. Another element, uh, important element of this discussion is another thing that we notice is that um, beliefs which, as I said, paradigmatically should shape my reasoning and my actions, sometimes, sometimes they don't. So the typical example is that I believe that uh, um, smoking causes cancer, but I still smoke every day two packs of cigarettes. It's like, I mean, how's that, how's that possible? If you believe that, why is that not informing your actions? So in other words, what we notice is that some of our beliefs are irrational in, in various ways, are irrational in the epistemic sense. They are not really attuned with the evidence, but they are also irrational, irrational in this more pragmatic sense, in the sense that they are sort of um, not really leading to the right kind of actions. And so this has been... Uh, sort of summarize that saying that, well, our beliefs are encapsulated, they are fragmented, they are in responses to evidence. And so many people at this point are sort of worrying because now the question is that, well, we started with the definition of belief as, as having this input and output role, this function, this is how you describe belief, but now I see that many of my beliefs are not like that. So what should I do? 
And here you, you really you have two alternatives in the literature. You have those who are going the strict, the strict sort of more stricter camp, and they go like, if something is uh, manifestly irrational, if an attitude is so irrational, it's not sensitive to evidence, doesn't lead to action, then it's not a belief. And I call those strong traditionalists in the paper that, that I wrote. Now, the problem with that view is that if you really have the strict notion of belief, you might arrive to the conclusion that you, are, you have very, very few beliefs because in many, many cases, my, what I think are my beliefs don't, don't behave as they should. So it seems that we end up with a very weird psychology in which we have very, very few beliefs, which is something we don't want. So, okay. So then there is, this is called, a, well, we might call it the too few objection, too few beliefs objection. What is the alternative? Well, the alternative view, which I call revisionism, uh, says that basically um, beliefs don't have to really be rational to be beliefs. So an attitude doesn't have to be inferentially related to other attitudes as typically believed his doesn't have to lead to action all the time, doesn't have to be responses to evidence either to be a belief, okay? So we have to be mindful for the fact that yes, ideally beliefs are those things that are responses to evidence only to action, but most of the time they don't. So the revisionist is gonna say, just embrace this idea and, the, and then they're gonna say, well, what really makes a belief a belief? So what really, what, the real way you can spot beliefs is by looking at assertion. So if I sincerely assert something, then, 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 then it means that I believe it. Okay, so assertion is the mark of belief. Okay, that's sort of the idea. Because when I imagine something, I don't assert it, um, they say. Okay, so that's, that's the two camps. I, I find both camps problematic, and in particular, I find the second one, the revisionist camp, particularly problematic. And the reason why, so like that I try to highlight in the paper, the reason why the revisionist camp is problematic is really twofold. If they are, if they're okay with the idea that beliefs are irrational and encapsulated, they don't give rise to action, so on and so forth, then I, I have a hard time understanding how can we distinguish from a functional standpoint, how can we distinguish belief from things like imagination? Because imagination is the same, doesn't respond to evidence. I can imagine to be uh, in Florida right now, even if I don't have any, any evidence for it. Um, my imagination doesn't lead me to do anything usually or it does, but only in a limited context. So if I'm imagining to be in Florida right now, I'm probably not gonna act as if I was in Florida for real. So how can the revisionist at this point really tell me what makes belief different from belief, from imagination, apologies. Uh, they're gonna say assertion, but the problem with that is that we assert things that we, we take to believe. But there are studies showing that we are sometimes wrong. In other words, sometimes we believe we believe something, we take ourselves to believe something, whereas what we're really doing is just a sort of in disguise imagination or disguise acceptance or disguise uh, sort of not really so fully believing something. So 
I worry that just a search, uh, looking at assertion when it comes to the mark of belief is not enough because sometimes people assert things that they don't actually believe and they do it sincerely, but they're just wrong about themselves. They have poor self-knowledge, so to speak. So because I'm not satisfied with this view, the views I finally come to mind, which is kind of the middle ground with this, between these two extremes. So my view says, look, belief, but not imagination, belief is minimally rational. What does that mean? It means two things, really. So belief is minimally rational because when I somehow, when the system, either consciously or unconsciously, detects a certain kind of irrationality when it comes to belief, the system will do something to fix it, okay? What does that even mean? It means that at times, um, either through some kind of self-reflection or because it's something that the system is able to detect, we are able to see that our beliefs are in fact irrational. We are able to reflect on the fact that I have evidence for something and I actually believe the opposite. And so when that happens, if that is really a belief, you'll see something happening. You'll see discomfort, you'll see cognitive dissonance, you'll see an attempt to fix it. So in this sense, it's minimal because it happens only when there is a level of detection, so to speak. And it's also minimal, this kind of rationality when it comes to belief, because it doesn't necessarily lead to the, to the solution, doesn't necessarily lead to the belief becoming rational. So what I mean by that, Let, let's assume I have a belief and then I recognize that I have actually evidence for the opposite. I have counter evidence for that belief. What I'm going to do? In my view, I might do two things. Either I change my belief to match the evidence, which is what I'm supposed to do, or I kind of try to forget about the evidence. I also, or I look for things that are going to discount the counter evidence then that they have, or I'm going to look for things that are supporting my belief in a sort of biased way. I'm go but I'm going to do something to fix the situation. So what I'm going to try to do is find what internal coherence. So the, the really the spirit of my view is that I think that beliefs are sort of motivated by things. Um, so, sorry, uh, beliefs are things that are, when, detection, when rationality is detected, they're going to strive to bring coherence back. That doesn't happen with imagination and the like. So if I can, if I can imagine at the same time to be in Florida and to be in Mississippi, I mean, or to be uh, in, in Italy. I mean, I can imagine multiple things at the same time. That's the great thing about, about imagination and assumption and acceptance and the like, that I can have multiple words, multiple scenarios in my mind at the same time. And that's the great thing about it. So whereas that doesn't happen with belief, I mean, the belief is sort of constrained in that particular way. And so that's sort of what I mean by minimal rationality. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so after this entire exposition, let me see if I can unpack things there a little bit. So uh, your view on belief, I mean, does it matter to you the potential social functions that belief serves? Because I, I guess that this can be important for later on in the interview when we talk about people sharing fake news, for example. I mean, does it matter to you that perhaps sometimes 
the kinds of beliefs people express serve a social function in the sense that they are trying to signal to a particular social group that they share the same beliefs that those people do and so they, they signal some sort of group allegiance even even if possibly they don't really believe what they say they believe so okay good so a lot a lot of things there um so it First of all, I'm totally uh, fine with the idea that many of our beliefs are motivated or caused by, not by evidence, but by things that are sort of either our biases or things that we want to be true or thing, or my, our social, our desire to fit in a social group. All that I'm totally fine with. I think that it is true that many of our beliefs are irrational. I do think that, in fact, sometimes we tend to believe things that are um, that, that our group believes. So we want to we want to fit in, and so if my group thinks some tend to people in my group tend to think something, tend to believe something, I might want to just you know conform to that. That's I think there is quite a bit of evidence for that. But there is also this point which I sort of briefly made before when I talked about the revisionist view that. Sometimes we think we believe something when we don't. We are just bad at sort of introspection or self-knowledge. And so I can say, I believe that, but what I, what I, this is kind of a failure of, of my, my ability to really figure out what, what's inside. And I might say that really only to, as you pointed out, to uh, signal uh, where I stand, signal my group membership, signal the fact that I that I belong to a certain circle of, of, of people. And so I, I, I am open to both, that beliefs are irrational and that sometimes when we say things we are sincere, but we don't actually believe them. And we just say, say them for, for social reasons. Mm-hmm. So, and what do you think about post-Oc rationalizations? I mean, are those also, do those also constitute a form of belief and how, how does it work? So it is a difficult thing to say what exactly those aptitudes are. So, um, I mean, my, my inclination when it comes to figuring out whether something is belief is, as I said, so let's try to see how it behaves under pressure, so to speak. Uh, especially when uh, the subject who has that belief um, somehow is pushed to recognize that that belief may be may be irrational. So my 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 strategy is to say to to figure out whether something a belief we have to put pressure on the subject and see and see how how they react. When it comes to post-hoc rationalizations, well, I think that sometimes we we come up with those uh, on the fly and we do that. I mean, for various reasons. Some of the reasons could be social. Uh, we are under pressure to come up with some some good uh, ra- rationalization for why we did something, and, and and then we 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 come up with something. But um, I, I here's a worry that I have. I think that sometimes we conflate two things. One thing is rationalization, post-hoc rationalization, and the other and a different thing is justification so i can tell you if you ask me why did you go to the store and i can say well i thought we were out of milk but i was wrong 
Okay, that could be a rationalization because I'm sort of explaining, I'm giving reasons um, for why I did what I did. But those reasons might not be good anymore, I, and I'm open to that. When I'm justifying my actions or my beliefs, I'm actually doing something slightly different. What I'm actually trying to do is I'm trying to defend those beliefs and those decisions. So when, in justification, what I'm trying to provide you with is a normative reason. It's a reason that you can also agree with. So you're going to agree with the same beliefs that I have or the same attitudes, the same decisions and preferences. So the, the idea there is that justification is, is has a perhaps a slightly social function than uh, than rationalization and and it it can be the result of a different kind of mechanism altogether mm -hmm. and, and what are confabulations so yeah that's a sort of where where my confabulation in confabulations in general they are sort of false and ill-grounded statements so that's sort of the general definition that you're going to find of confabulations so you're going to see confabulations when there are um sort of gaps in memory for instance then um, I, I have a gap in memory i don't, don't like that and so i'm going to come up with a false memory but that's not really what i've been working on what i've been working on is a slightly different type of confabulation which is really the result of um uh, people asking you why did you do that, uh, or challenging your your previous actions or your current preferences or your current beliefs. So sometimes people go like, yeah, but why do you believe that? Why do you why why do you think that? And and it seems that um, both in healthy subjects and in subjects with some 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 health problems, you find in both of these categories you find the tendency of coming up with reasons. I did it because, and sort of, these are sort of the re and I come up with some reasons. Um, and so the, the work on confabulation in, in this area, in this type of confabulation, is really a work that tries to figure out, like, what are these things? Why do people, even healthy subjects, come up with this sort of confabulation? Why do they do confabulate? What is the mechanism behind that? Okay, and so the work, the work that has been done is on that I that I've done is particularly on that particular type of confabulation. Mm -hmm. So there are different types of confabulations then, and perhaps they serve different purposes. Yeah. So as I said, there is the type that just wants to um, fill a gap in memory, mm -hmm. uh, past past. Uh, past experiences that you have, and you might have, if you were if you're a subject with dementia, for instance, you have gaps, and so you want to find a patch for that. So that's one type of confabulation. Then there are types of confabulation, as I said, they are more um, related, and you find them a lot in healthy subjects. Uh, they are more related to questions like, why? Why did you do, did you do that? Why do you think that? And uh, um, and there you have perhaps three types, subtypes, so to speak. You have um, the type of confabulations that are really just looking for the causes that you 
that brought you to do something or brought you form a belief or, or a preferences. Now it's important to distinguish, uh, to understand what causes, what, what, are, what causes are. So causes in this context can be brute facts. So um, why did I say that particular thing? Oh, well, because I was in a bad mood. Being in a bad mood is the brute cause that brought me to do something or to say something, for instance. That's one thing, that's what a confabulation could be, coming up with a cause. Of course, let's remember that the confabulation is both false and ill-grounded, so the cause is not going to be the true one. But I'm just going to give you like uh, an explanation. And, eh, it wasn't a bad move. That's an explanation. Then you've got a different type of thing. Sometimes we come up with, again, what you called, what you talked about before, namely rationalizations. Why did you go to the store? Because I thought uh, we were out of milk. So that thought is not just the cause, it's actually my motivation. It kind of makes sense of why I, I did what I did. The reason for which I went to the store was that I thought we were out of milk. So the thought is the motivation or reason for which philosophers say. Again, it can be, you can recognize that it's false. You can say, well, yeah, I thought, but I was wrong. It rationalizes it, but doesn't justify your action. And now you have a third kind, which I think that is the kind I'm interested in, and it, I think haven't, hasn't been um, sort of dealt with enough in the literature. What I think sometimes confabulations do, they actually provide justifications. So why do I think that? So the typical example, one of the key examples of of confabulation, even in healthy subjects, are, are um, sort of drawn from literature and psychology. And one typical study, one key study on this in this literature, told um, provides subjects with a choice. Okay, subjects are provided with a choice of deciding among four different pairs of socks or stocking, and then they make a choice. Let's say they they choose the first one. Um, and, and then they're asked, why did you, did you choose, did you choose that? Why, why that one particular stocking? And they go, oh, the color, I really like that, that color. Or, oh, the shape, the shape was so neat. Or oh, the texture, the texture was amazing. So they come up with all these reasons, okay? Um, it turns out that in fact, all the, the pairs were the same. Okay, so these are confabulation. And why do people do that? Well, my story is, well, sometimes people do that because they want to justify their choice. They don't want to give up. They don't want to say, oh, my choice was, wasn't really good. And so they provide reasons which are ill-grounded and false, but they do that to justify. So that's a sort of the, the, my, 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 my story about why sometimes we confabulate. Okay, so that reason you just mentioned would that be the evolutionary rationale behind our abil ability to confabulate? Okay, here I'm really kind of uh, using a theory that is not mine, but it's um, uh, a theory put in forward by, by Sperber and Hugo Mercier, Dan Sperber and Hugo Mercier. Uh, and they think that some our reasoning mechanism, our the, re the reason why we reason, so to speak, the function of our reasoning 
is um, an evolutionary function. And the function is to really argue. In other words, mm -hmm. our reasoning mechanism is directed to the idea that we want to provide others with reasons. And those reasons are meant to convince others of the goodness of our positions, of the goodness of our choices, of the goodness of our actions. And this is a social function, it's a social function of reasoning, and that's why reasoning, in their view, evolved. So what I'm doing, I'm really taking this idea and saying, look, some confabulations are the result of this kind of mechanism. Some confabulations are meant to provide others with reasons that can convince them that my action, my belief, my choice was the right one. And so this is why I think my view is slightly different from others' view that put more emphasis on the fact that uh, confabulations are failure of self-knowledge. They think, well, confabulations are rationalizations, but because they're false and, and unjustified, they really show that we can't figure out the reason for which we did some, something. We are bad at self-knowledge. I agree that we are bad at self-knowledge. I'm not, I'm not complaining with that particular point, but I just think, well, some confabulations are really not about self-knowledge. Some confabulations are about this particular purpose that the reasoning mechanism has, which is to provide people with good reasons, with normative reasons, reasons that they can actually agree with. So, I mean, even if not all confabulations have a social function, if we weren't social to begin with, I mean, we wouldn't have much of a need to confabulate, right? I, in many cases, I think that's, that's correct, yes. In many cases, I think that, um, the, as I said, the mechanism behind confabulation is this reasoning process, and given, given it that it's... Uh, social social mechanism with a social function yeah i think that we were, if we were a social creature we would probably not confabulate as much let's put it like that for sure yeah okay so do we know or is there any particular reason as to why we can't deliberately believe what we want <laughs> so yeah the that's a that's a that's a difficult one um so what do we, first of all, it's useful, I think, uh, to figure out what we mean by the fact we can't believe what we want. Because one's going to say, of course we won't, we, we, we're going to believe what we want. Haven't you said that we are irrational and all that? And it's like, yes, of course, we do believe what we want. What we cannot do, and the cannot is a psychological can, so we cannot psychologically do, is we can't form beliefs um, in full awareness based on reasons that have nothing to do with the truth of that belief. So let me tell you what that means briefly. It means that when you're kind of thinking, oh, well, should I believe in global warming? Should I not? You're looking at the evidence. Then you realize, man, if global warming is real, I'm going to be very, very sad. <laughs> well, that can, that consideration that had nothing to do with the truth of the belief has to do with whether you're not going to be sad about it that uh, cannot be a reason for which we go back to the idea of motivation cannot be a reason for which you form that belief and in particular what you cannot do you cannot go like yeah i'm not going to believe in global warming why well because it makes me too sad 
no, that's something we cannot do. Uh, and that's, this phenomenon has been, it's pretty well established in the literature, it's something we can't do. So unconsciously, we can form a belief based on our preferences, but consciously, in full awareness, we cannot do that. That's the sort of distinction. And so I think you were asking why, right? I think your question is, why do you think that there is this psychological phenomenon there? So people have given different uh, explanations for why why we cannot, in full consciousness, come to believe something just because we want to. So my story is is uh, is a story that has to do with really two factors: the role that belief has in reasoning, okay, and what we do when we form beliefs in a deliberate way. So let me say, when we form a belief in a deliberate way, and you ask, or you're asking yourself, okay, should I believe in global warming? When you actually ask that question, you're employing the concept of belief. Okay, so you're saying, you're saying to yourself, okay, should I believe it? At that moment, you're, you're using the concept of belief. Now, my argument is that the concept of belief is a concept, is a very specific concept that such that the belief is an attitude would have a specific role. Namely, its role is to find it to be a good premise in reasoning. In other words, when you when you kind of deliberately thinking about should I believe that, what you're asking is, can I use that as a good premise in reasoning? Can I use this proposition as a good premise in my future reasoning? Okay. This goes back to the first idea that I we talked about, namely the role the belief has in action. So when you're guided by your beliefs, they, if they are true, they're going to satisfy your desires. Otherwise, you, otherwise they, if they're false, they, you're going to be really in a re really bad shape. Okay? So what you want, in other words, is that your beliefs are going to be guiding you in reasoning, pragmatic reasoning in particular. But to, do, to, to guide you, they have to be good premises. They have to be good reasons. So every time you form a belief in a deliberate way, is you're asking, can I use this as a good reason, as a good premise in my future reason? And since good reason and good premises are true, you're asking yourself, can I believe, can I use this as, as a true premise? Okay, when you're forming a belief deliberately, you're asking yourself, is this proposition, I'm going to be able to use this proposition as, as true in my future reason? And this is why you can't then go just, yeah, I'm going to believe whatever I want. Because if you believe whatever you want, that very thing that you're going to be using in reasoning won't be true. Okay, so you won't be able to use it in reasoning. Okay, so that's why, in other words, we can't believe at will, or we can't believe what we want. Because we are constrained by the concept of belief, but we are constrained by the fact that belief is supposed to play a specific role in reasoning, namely to be a good premise. And by good, I mean true. Okay. So that's why the sto how the story goes. Now, there are other views out there. That the other views think that, no, what, what we are really doing is uh, we are employing a normative concept. Uh, so because belief is a normative concept that kind of has in it the, the idea that belief is correct only if, if true. I resist that. I resist the idea that you, can, you should incorporate normativity in your psychology. My view doesn't do that. My view doesn't require the idea of a norm, doesn't require the idea of an aim of belief. Just says 
It is the role the belief plays in reasoning. You're applying it every time you talk about your beliefs, and so you're constrained by it. So that's uh, that's uh, sort of the, the view that I put forward. Sure. So I've already alluded to this question earlier when I asked you about the social function of beliefs. Why do people share fake stories? Well, they share fake stories, um, I, I assume online, uh, we usually now uh, taking this for granted, but they, people, the people share fake stories, in particular, they share fake stories online for various reasons, honestly. They just, sometimes they just want to be funny, okay? Sometimes it's just something that is interesting, caught their attention, make, make them laugh, they want to make their audience laugh, and they just share these crazy stories. So I think that sometimes people forget that that's a lot what's going on. Okay, so if taking that out, uh, what, what is left? Well, the, the main view, the, 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 if you will, the, the traditional story at this point is people share stories that are fake and that they sometimes they're obviously fake, really for two reasons. Either they want to deceive their audience or they actually believe those stories and they're sort of being uh, convinced that those stories are true, even though they are wildly kind of odd and fake. But uh, like the Pizzagate, for instance, they share those stories because they believe it. So the, these are the, the two main views that you're going to find out there, either deception or just sharing what you believe. I think that's probably true. That's probably true that sometimes people do that. Sometimes uh, you have people who are really out for like just trapping and disseminating, missing, trapping people and disseminating misinformation and trying to spread this information. That's what they're all about. Yes, and sometimes people are also um, not very kind of careful and they share stories that they, they generally believe. Okay, but there is a third, there is a third option which I don't think has been talked about enough, which is sometimes people just share stories to signal, to signal to others their social belong, so their social membership, basically, their social positioning. They're not trying to be deceptive. They're not trying to just convince others of things that are false. They just want to make sure that people know where they stand. And, uh, and then I think so, and then that's the social function of, the signaling function of sharing fake stories. And I think that's sort of underappreciated. And, and also what is being underappreciated is the fact that when you signal your social positioning, when you tell others um, where you belong, so to speak, you might be doing this for various reasons. Well, one is just to say, oh, I, I belong to this group. There may be other reasons, and um, Hugo Mercier in his book goes on, uh, go, says a few things about this that are very interesting, and I, and I use some of his ideas in the paper. Um, and so when you signal your, your membership, you might do this in a way so that kind of shows not only that you're a member of the group, but that you're re shows your real sort of deep commitment to that group. I'm just gonna say something that is so outrageous, so false, so obviously crazy that kind of clearly sort of turns off anybody who is not in my in my group who kind of is going to alienate uh, alienate anybody that is not in my group okay i don't really believe to be true but i want i'm i'm making sure that my social membership my social position is clear and that i and it's also clear that i don't like this other group 
So we signal for, for, for also for these reasons. And, but there are other reasons as well why we, why we want to signal our social positioning. And, and I think that it's a, it, it, this thing should be studied more and more so we actually know what to do about those. Mm -hmm. But people sharing fake news, does it have anything to do with stupidity? No, I mean, ah, no. I mean, <laughs> everybody's a little stupid sometimes. So I, there is quite a bit of research in psychology that indicates that at times what we actually do is not, not, it's not that we are stupid, we are a little lazy. And maybe the, the format of social media is conducive to laziness. You see a story, kind of interesting, maybe the headline of an, of, an art, of an article is resonates with things that you sort of believe, and you just share it. You don't even read the article or you don't really kind of think things through. So the, the psychological literature and studies, they indicate that many times people share things because they're a little shallow or they're a little um, lazy and they engage, instead of engaging their sort of system two, namely their more re reflective reasoning processes, they're usually using their system one. Like, oh, something looks okay, looks interesting, looks plausible, they share it. Um, and that's why, that's the why you see so much um, disinformation or misinformation on the web. So that's definitely one view. So it's, I don't think that there's stupidity, it's just that people may be a little lazy with their reasoning at times. Right. Does it make sense to ask if people are rational or irrational? Um, I think it does. And I think that, I think what we see is that people are irrational. Uh, and by that, I mean that they are not, as I pointed out before, they are not sensitive to the evidence that they have. Their sort of psychological architectures uh, at times ends up being a little sort of fragmented. So they believe something in a context, but then they switch context, they actually be the opposite. And that's a form of rationality, of course, because you can't believe contradictions. People believe things, but then they act in completely different ways, as in my example of the smoking. So yes, believe, uh, sorry, uh, people are irrational. Um, I think though that, as I tried to argue before, they are irrational up to a point. Uh, I think they are still minimally rational in the sense that when, put some, when you put pressure on, on their rationality, they're going to try to find ways to either uh, sort of really become more rational or become even more irrational by, by just mm, achieving a sense of internal coherence, even though the internal coherence is not what they should, should be striving for. Mm -hmm. So just one last topic perhaps two or three questions about it. Since you're also interested in AI systems, uh, yeah. Do you also think that these issues surrounding human psychology we've been talking about, like belief, confabulation, imagination, and so on, would also apply to those systems? Well, I, yeah, I've been, I've been, I've been interested in this topic, and I started working on this topic as well. Um, and I'm collaborating with computer scientists, and what what we're 
what we are trying to do is we are trying to develop a sort of a metacognitive system. So metacognition is cognition about cognition in particular, it's cognition about your own cognition. So it kind of goes back to any of self-knowledge that we talked about. So the idea there is, as previously mentioned, we have, it seems at least some psychological, there is some psychological evidence for the fact that we might have two systems, one call system, one is shallow, is fast, is based on heuristics, but is often biased. Now we have a system two that is more rational, more slower, energy consuming, but is also at times able to lead us to the right decision or the right belief. So it seems that psychological evidence seems to point to these two um, systems being in place. So what we are trying to do is we are trying to reproduce that in, in a, an AI, okay, in an artificial intelligence system. And, and of course, metacognition is going to be the arbitrator between these two systems. So going back to your question, yes, I believe there is, of course, push for trying to um, make AI more human in a sense, while also avoiding some of the pitfalls of human reasoning and human psychology for sure. How to do that is not always an easy, an easy task, an easy question to, to solve because, well, humans are very different from machines. Uh, but I think that um, since one of the goal and, and definitely the topics in, in the AI, AI ethics ecosystem at this point is to find a more trustworthy AI, to develop a more trustworthy AI than an AI that has some human characteristics like metacognition, for instance, or system one, system two, or the ability to choose between different values, then that's definitely an AI that is probably going to be more trustworthy than what we have at the moment. So, yeah. And when it comes to the ethics side of things, should we care if AI systems develop this sort of uh, psychological abilities. Yeah, as I said, I think uh, I think there are good reasons to try to import some of the psychological structures of some of the architecture, human architecture, into AI. And both because then the AI is going to be able to help humans more if it has sort of somewhat similar structures, although. The, the ability of the AI to the, to compute is much much more. But if AI resembles humans, it might be able to help humans more. Um, so that's one thing. And the other is, in order for us to trust AI, to uh, engage with AI in a trustworthy way, which is a hot topic right now, it might be helpful to start to. It might be helpful to. To have a relationship with an AI that kind of looks like a human, not in the sense of like in the ex exterior sense, the, how it looks from from the outside, but how it looks from the inside. So an AI that has uh, that resembles some human characteristics, some hum human's way of reasoning, some human way of um, prioritizing certain values, for instance. An AI that is able to justify, as going back to what we said before, an AI that is able to justify its choices, to explain and rationalize why 
it did what it did, why it came to this conclusion versus that conclusion. In, in other words, an explainable, um, interpretable, understandable AI is something that is definitely needed to have a trustworthy AI. And my, my take is that the role of metacognition is going to be key to, to deliver that because metacognition is what we have, what we use to explain, justify, motivate all what we have, our action choices and preferences and beliefs. So I think that in the role of metacognition is key in trust, in human to human trust then thereby I also think that in order to develop a human to machine stress, the role of metacognition is going to be essential. So um, this is why sort of I've been, I've been working with, with the other scientists on, on this issue. But do you think that any of the psychological abilities we've been talking about could play a role in turning AI systems into sentient beings? And perhaps we should also be careful about that? Well, we should definitely be careful about that. I I don't have a set view on what makes uh, or what would make an AI sentient. Mm -hmm. I I teach uh, uh, I'm teaching right now a course. Uh, it's called Minds and Machines, and we talk about consciousness. We talk about Turing test, and then it's very fun. And but I, I've been teaching this course for a while, but I still don't have a set view on what on the on what makes uh, what will make AI. Uh, conscious or sentient in, in, in that way. I think, though, that metacognition, as I pointed out, uh, having an arbitrator within the system that is able to tell you, well, I'm using this, now I'm using this algorithm, and then in this, in this other context, I'm going to use a different algorithm. And I'm using these different algorithms because I abide to these values. These are my priorities. It could be accuracy, it could be fairness, it could be preserving privacy, could be preserving human autonomy. If we have an AI able to kind of lay out the, the values behind the choices that it makes, well, I think that will be definitely a step forward. And, uh, but I don't see that happening unless we have an AI that is able to arbitrate and look inside and then reason in a way similar to the way we reason and then I able to offer justification and rationalization. So, yeah, I mean, again, I don't know when, when, what, what makes, uh, what will make AI conscious, but definitely that is going to be a step in the, in that direction for sure. Okay. Fair enough. So before we finish, where can people find your work on the internet? So they can find me on the union website. They can find me on, on, I have a website as well. They can find me on, I have, I'm, on um well i'm also on linkedin and on twitter um and also on academia.com so academia.com so you can find me many 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 ways <laughs> i hope okay. that okay i will be leaving some links to your work in the description thank box you. of the interview and thank you so much for coming to the show it's been a real pleasure to talk to you my pleasure my pleasure take care Hi guys, thank you for watching the interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show. It's thanks to people like you that it keeps running. I will leave links in the description box to Patreon and PayPal. Any amount, even just $1 per month, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. 
This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Peruga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Ernst Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Glinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bordarno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henry Kalenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columber, Jorge Espinha, Phil Cavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Robert, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenk, Wal Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslin Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Desaraújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dermiti Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roff, Yannick Punter, Adana Ruzmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linares, Lida Cosmidi, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, My Producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Taffini, Akion Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardis France and Thomas Trumbull, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.